Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. I'm Chandra Jackson, an epidemiologist and an Alonzo Smith Yerby postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. It is an honor to introduce the incredibly accomplished and distinguished Mr. Bill Strickland. Once considered an at-risk youth who grew up to become a MacArthur Genius Award recipient, Mr. Strickland is a social innovator, community leader, graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, and the president and CEO of the Manchester Bidwell Corporation, a nonprofit based in his hometown of Pittsburgh. The organization provides market-driven career education created through strong partners partnerships with leading local industries. In addition to offering arts-based learning and mentoring to at-risk youth, the nonprofit offers adult career training in diverse fields and has been coined as a successful business model for social change. In fact, Mr. Strickland is currently working to convince 200 cities around the world to replicate his jobs training, arts, and education program. Throughout Mr. Strickland's distinguished 45-year career, he has been honored with numerous prestigious awards, including 10 honorary degrees, as well as the coveted Goy Peace Award in 2011. President Obama selected Mr. Strickland for the White House Council for Community Solutions, which advises the president on the best ways to mobilize citizens, nonprofits, businesses, and the government to work more effectively together to solve community needs. He is also author of Make the Impossible Possible, which is about one man's crusade to inspire others to dream bigger and to achieve the extraordinary. Hillary Clinton has referred to Mr. Strickland as, in his nonprofit as a testament to the power of the arts to transform children's lives. And the first president of eBay has called him a genius because Mr. Strickland sees the inherent genius in everyone. We thank you, Mr. Strickland, for speaking with us and for your tireless leadership and dedication to serving the underserved and those often left without a voice. Before I turn the session over to our moderator, Dr. Joan Reed, please join me in giving Mr. Strickland a warm welcome to the Harvard School of Public Health and to the decision-making Voices from the Field Leadership Series. So thank you, Chandra. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you for being here with us today uh, and for uh, being willing to share with us lessons from your journey, a journey of firsts and of dreaming, but not just dreaming, but of making things happen. And we're going to start today with a presentation from Bill uh, to learn more about what he's done and how he's done it. I'm going to show you some pictures of what I do for a living in Pittsburgh. And as you'll see, these pictures have gotten me in some interesting places, including where I'm at today. But it all is autobiographical. Once upon a time, public school kid, flunking out of school, and an art teacher actually saved my life, a guy named Frank Ross. He got me excited about Clay. He says, I'm leaving here. I'm not going to let you die like your buddies on the street. You're going to college. So he hounded me during my senior year till I filled out a, something called the Scholastic Aptitude Test. Never seen the test, flunked the test, get in on probation, graduate with honors. Now I'm a trustee of the University of Pittsburgh. And I was the commencement speaker. 
And I got up in front of 13,000 people and I said, don't give up on the poor kids. They might end up being the commencement speaker. And that story is what we'll talk about for a couple minutes. Environment drives behavior. Beautiful environments create beautiful kids. Prisons create prisoners. So based on that philosophy, many years later, I went out and raised a whole pile of money to build uh, a center, that center. This is my concept of what a school for poor people is supposed to look like. This was done by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. I met Mr. Wright's architecture when I was 16 years old, and I was determined I was going to build something like that in my community. So I found one of his great students. I built that center, which was the scale model for the Pittsburgh airport. So it's kind of famous. And when you come to see the place, what you will not see is a metal detector or security cameras, because I don't have any, in the highest crime rate neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And in 27 years of operation, no drugs, no alcohol, no police calls, no theft, no vandalism, zero. I'll also take you up to see my old high school. It's four blocks away. Steel doors, metal detectors, bars from the windows in the same neighborhood. Nobody's that lucky. Environment drives behavior. Beautiful environments create beautiful kids. Prisons create prisoners. So based on that philosophy, I built this center. That's the entrance to the building. Fabulous artwork throughout the building. There's no anti-theft system on any of the artwork. We haven't lost anything in 26 years, not a pencil. And what we now know is that the way in which you treat people oftentimes sets the stage for their development. The other thing that I'm very strong about is light, L-I-G-H-T. Poor people are always in the dark in the heads. So the idea is to get them out in the sunlight and let them know that the sun's for everybody on the planet, not just rich kids. And that has turned out to be a very, very important principle that we live under. That's our kitchen. I promote Heinz ketchup wherever I go in the world, which I hope you eat up here at the Harvard School Wales. Um, I don't know where your politics are about ketchup, but I stand with ketchup. Uh, <laughs> I had a cardboard box put on my school and I had it in the garbage bag, and I was trying to raise money, so I got called into the office of United States Senator John Hines, who was the heir to the Hines ketchup fortune, which was like going to see the Wizard of Oz, because he had about 600 million, and I had about 60 cents. He said, man, you've done a great job with the inner city people, and we understand you want to build a new school. I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, you could really help our affirmative action goals out if you'd had a culinary program in your school when you get it built. That way, you could hire some black folks and solve the problem. Well, back then, we were a building trades program, you know, bricklaying, carpentry and stuff. I said, Senator, I'm really reluctant to go into a field I don't know anything about. Give me the money. We'll build a school. I'll come back in a couple years, and we'll get that culinary program going just like you ask. And he sat there quietly, so... What would your answer be if I said I'd give you a million dollars? I said, Senator, it appears that we're going into the food training business. And John, give me a million dollars. And we borrowed the curriculum from the Heinz Ketchup Company. And we trained poor people to become gourmet cooks in 10 months flat in the middle of the inner city of Pittsburgh. And this turned about to be quite a story. Built an amphitheater for the students. They're all in uniform. That's lunch at the school, by the way. Um, the concept is you can't teach people if they're hungry. So the answer is give them something to eat, but we don't do fast food, we do gourmet food. So every student at the center has a gourmet lunch every day. Good for the stomachs, better for the heads. That's one of our students. He's now a chemical technician with the Water Treatment Authority. He's done pretty well for himself. He was on unemployment when he started with us. He's now making $50,000 a year. 
what we discovered is the only thing wrong with poor people they don't have any money which happens to be a curable condition it's all in the way you think about people that drives performance this is our medical coding group we do a lot of medical technician training <clears throat> medical coders medical billing people pharmaceutical techs we've gotten very good at this stuff and we can take people in less than 12 months and they could be functioning as an assistant in the good pharmacy lab as sure as I'm sitting on this podium so we now know that we can take technology and teach the poor people and you can do it fine and if we don't figure this out this country's done because we can't have millions of people walking the streets with no skills because they have no skills they're also in bad situations causing lots of trouble getting into harm's way and we can't this is not sustainable this is the arts program Mr. Ross taught me to be pottery in the 60s so I set up this program in the streets by working with kids doing riots and I started hearing back from the school system that the kids were starting to show up more regularly after a couple of years I figured it out there wasn't anything wrong with the kids the school system was the problem what these kids needed was clay sunlight good food and somebody to believe in them and on the basis of that we now graduate over 90% of our kids from the school system and has a 50% dropout rate same kids in the middle of the inner city of Pittsburgh last year we graduated 99% of the kids there's nothing wrong with these children that affection and good food and sunlight can't cure that's one of our kids look at this guy's eyes that's the way a student's supposed to look when they're in school so when I go to schools what I do is I look at the kids eyes because most of the time they're looking out the window or at each other they're not looking at the book this kid who took that picture is now working for Walt Disney Studios the guy on the left used to be a student in the program he went off to college and is back teaching <clears throat> in the center that saved his life five of my faculty are former kids went to program back teaching the school so I've closed the circle of my own lifetime and that's our digital imaging lab I have poor kids doing advanced technology digital imaging in the middle of the inner city of Pittsburgh we're going to form a partnership with MIT big time and I want to scale this thing across the country that's our music hall I built a music hall while I was at it and a very famous trumpet player named Dizzy Gillespie showed up and I said why would you come to a black school in the middle of the inner city he said Billy Taylor told me a black guy built this fabulous thing and I didn't believe I want to see for myself <laughs> and you're too young to appreciate what you built here but I'm not you ought to build one of these things in every city in this country and I'm gonna help you do it so he allowed us to record his concert he gave us the rights to the music then a piano player named Herbie Hancock dropped by and Wynton Marcellus and Wynton Marcellus's dad Ellis Marcellus who's a heck of a piano player by the way the Basie band Shirley Horn, Pat Metheny, all of them. I now have 600 recordings and we've won five Grammys. So we have the hot young digital recording studio in America in a black neighborhood in the middle of Pittsburgh. Here's Dizzy, just in case you thought I was lying, he was there. <laughs> Those are the five Grammys. That's our recording studio. We do five points surround sound. I built an office complex next to the building and this is actually a medical technology facility thing makes money so I figured out how to convert our strategy into a business so this actually generates money to support school and we built a greenhouse because I grow um, orchids I have the welfare moms growing orchids big time and we sell them in the grocery stores and generate money to support the center we have the probably the most sophisticated greenhouse 
east of the Mississippi River in an inner city environment as ours. And now I'm down the end of the story. And it was mentioned that I met one of the guys who ran a company called eBay. Well, I met him because I was doing this slideshow in the Silicon Valley. So I, this kid walks up to me and says, man, that's a story. I said, great, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I built a company called eBay. I said, oh, great, man, you got a card? I'm not a techie guy, so I didn't know what eBay was. So I put the kid's card in my pocket and went back to Pittsburgh and asked one of the little techie kids. I said, have you ever heard of something called eBay? He said, oh, yeah, Mr. Strickland, that's the Electronic Commerce Network. I said, holy smokes, I met the guy that built the company. So I called him up. I said, Mr. Scoff, come to have a much deeper appreciation of who you are, man. And he started laughing. He said, I thought you'd figure it out sooner or later. Here's a half a million dollars. I said, what's that for? He says, your first replication. Dizzy was right. I think you can scale this. So Jeff's become a very close friend, one of my closest friends. Good guy. And we're building centers. And we may build a lot of centers before this is over. But these are open. There's Jeff, Mr. eBay, and Billy Wong, and the kids doing digital imaging in San Francisco. This is the one we built in Grand Rapids. Those are photos of Dr. King taken during the last two years of his life. That's our first class of pharmacy techs going to work at the Spectrum Health in uh, Grand Rapids. And this is the one we just opened up in New Haven a year ago. It looks just like that picture. And this is the one we opened up in Boston. It's right over in Dorchester. And these are cities talking to us about building centers. And I'm not out looking for work. These are guys who have heard about the center, come to Pittsburgh, and that is the end of the story. So that's what I do for a living. That's a deeply abbreviated version, but it gives you the concept of where we're coming from. Every space is beautiful. Not one center has a metal detector. You treat people like prisoners, they learn like prisoners. You treat them like human beings, they learn like human beings. So we got that problem figured out. And the goal is to build 200 centers, 100 in the U.S. and 100 around the world. We have conversations now in Japan, Israel. We have Jews and Arabs meeting in Israel as I sit here speaking. England, probably in London, Costa Rica, and Canada so far. And the idea is that we want to try to scale this thing and change this conversation about poverty in our world as quickly as possible. So maybe I'll stop there. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. When I look at this and I think about somebody with a 45-year history of, of being first, of, of stepping into new spaces, um, where do you get your energy or your drive or your vision to go down these paths? Well, one, I think my mother did a pretty good job of raising me. And one of the things she did was she transferred a lot of her hopes and dreams to her kids. And so I inherited a lot of my mother's vision about dignity, doing things the right way, caring for others, and so on. I wasn't born like that. I became like that. So I think a social conscience was developed in me by my mom. Secondly, we grew up in some very difficult circumstances, but she scrubbed floors to give us a chance to eat. So I was able to see someone who sacrificed her life for her kids so that they could have a decent strategy and a chance to make a pretty good life for themselves. So I inherited her energy. And thirdly, I draw a line of energy from the work. Every time I meet a kid who's gone through and is now in college or raising his kids or has paid off his mortgage, I draw energy from that experience. And every time I build a center, 
I draw tremendous energy from the excitement that gets generated by building these centers. So I draw energy from the work that I do, which compels me and feeds me to continue the journey. And some people have said, in many ways, I'm a visionary. Well, maybe I am. Um, but whether I, I'm not or am doesn't matter. I have a picture of how I want the world to look. And that's that picture that I think about every day when I get up. And it's the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. And I'm determined to try and play this hand out, see where it takes me. So how do you begin to change conversations? One at a time, very slowly. I'm not in the miracle business. <laughs> this is the hard work business. And what I saw, showed you in 12 minutes or so, it's 40 years worth of effort. So if you want to do this kind of work, you better not be in a hurry, okay? Now, if you want to have an easy life, set up a pizza shop. But if you want to change mankind, starting with these poor kids in the inner city, plan on sticking around a while. And also, you can't demand that the students you work with celebrate you. They're trying to figure out how to survive. You've got to figure out how to celebrate yourself so that you're independent of the environment that you're trying to affect. That's a big concept and fundamentally very important to the work. Secondly, you've got to have an idea where you end up or you're never going to get there. So you've got to have a pretty cool picture of what you're trying to get out of this thing, and then you work backwards. So in my case, you know, I want to build centers to change the lives of people dramatically, and I'm in a big hurry. And it's that energy that compels me, and it's that vision of leadership uh, by which I've determined I want to live my life. So we've heard uh, from Shonda that, that you've had, um, alluded to various careers. And I know that one of the things that, you, that you've done was become one of the first black commercial pilots. Right. And um, what some of you may not know um, is your journey to do that. Mm. Um, and your own airline that you had for a while. But I see this stream of stepping into spaces, yeah. of, of believing something can happen sure. even when it's not there. And I see this stream carrying forward in terms of your current work. Can you speak to that? Well, I'm a type A personality. Let's start there. And from what I gather, we're all pretty much built the same. We're never satisfied. We don't sleep very well. And we're determined to make a difference. That is me. That's who I'm built like. And so I have this incredible curiosity about how the world works. And no one ever told me I couldn't be an airline pilot just because I never flew airplanes. That has nothing to do with it. What I decided, I'm going to be an airline pilot, so let's figure out how to do that. And that's how I think. The greenhouse we have. A guy came over to my house 14 years ago, and he brought this plant. I said, what is that thing? He said, oh, that's an orchid. I said, oh, that's cool. So I'm kind of looking at this orchid. It's really beautiful. So I bought a book, Orchids for Beginners, and started visiting greenhouses. After the third greenhouse, I said, hey, that big a deal. I can do that. <laughs> and that was the genesis of the fundraising campaign that resulted in a $6 million greenhouse in the middle of the inner city of Pittsburgh. And nobody cared about where it came from. They cared about where it was. So now this fabulous greenhouse that's working with people who didn't have much of a chance at life, including a student who recently graduated. She came up to me at graduation. She said, uh, thank you for saving my life. Did I to save your life? She said, well, 
I was on a field trip to Canada with, with the group from the greenhouse, and the customs agent called me ma'am for the first time in my memory. I was able to get my dignity back, and I've got a job, and I'm going to be fine. That's why I built the greenhouse, for that story. And we got a lot of stories like that. So the orchids are part of our, our therapy for changing the way that people see themselves. And it's an economic generator to support the school. So all of these things in one way or another has something to do with advancing the picture. The airline deal is I wanted to fly airplanes. I got on an airplane when I was 22 years old, never been in a plane. And I was flying over New York on TWA back then. And I was having this fabulous breakfast. There's this beautiful flight attendant sitting there talking to me because there's nobody in the plane, so he sat and talked to me. And I thought, man, this is cool. I'm having a great breakfast, nice lady, 31,000 feet over the Whitestone Bridge in New York. How do you get to do this for a living? So when the plane lands, I asked the pilot, how do you get to do this for a living? I said, well, if you're determined enough, you can actually get your ratings as a civilian, which I didn't know. He said, go back to your airport and have them take you up. Well, I did the following week. Private pilot flew around and said, loved it, man. I said, how do I get to be an airline pilot? He said, what do you think the rest of us are standing around trying to do? I said, I didn't ask you that. I said, what's the procedure? Translation, I bought an airplane. Flew it around to build time. Then I went off to 727 school on my own and got rated on jets and got a job for Braniff. And guess what airport I was assigned to? LaGuardia taken off over the Whitestone Bridge, Amazing. right? For real. <laughs> now, if I hadn't gotten laid off from Braniff, I never would have built the center I just showed you the picture of. It was one of those forks in the road. When you think it's dark, it's actually light. And I, I had to build that center to save myself because I lost the job I wanted the most in life through no fault of my own. The only way to overcome that, you've got to build something even more spectacular. The centers provided that opportunity. So I want to open this up, and as, as we go there, in our talking before, you talked about part of your work is building um, sanctuaries of sanity. Yeah. Um, but from what you've just said, it's not just for the woman who, with the orchids and that story, but also for yourself in terms of this is healing and helpful to others, but also sure. for you. What I discovered after the fact is the center did exactly what I thought it would do if I could get it built. It actually saved me. I draw energy from the very center that I created. So when I walk in, I'm down, or we lost some funding. That's on Monday morning. Fifteen minutes later, I'm re-engaged because the thing is very powerful, and I've created all this energy, and there's all these bright people walking around. So you can't be depressed very long. They just kind of pick you up and swoop you up in this thing. So it's turned out to be a very powerful antidote to depression, which I hadn't figured on. But it's, it's almost the perfect circle. There's so much going on now. I got jazz. Ahmed Jamal's coming to play, or Herbie Hancock. We got orchids, you know, and the festival's starting. We got to be in a part of that. We got kids coming from the school system. We're opening up new vocational schools. You know, the Financial Times of London just did a big story on us. So now we may end up maybe building a center in London. That's on the Monday. So that's how the center operates every day. As you'll see when you guys come visit, you can feel the static electricity in the air. And that's very exciting because every center functions exactly the same way.
There is no bureaucracy. We're not dull. We're not dumbed down. This is playing to the, the brilliance of everybody that works there. People want to work at a place like that. All the great companies in the world create that environment. That's what we've created. You open this up. They pick me. How do you pick your students? We pick our students through a self-selection that they initiate. We go into the public schools. We do a little dog and pony show with the arts. Any, any kid that makes the mistake of scratching their head during the presentation to end the program. So get your mother signed piece of paper says you can get on a school bus and you're good to go. Well, we have a waiting list, two or three deep, for a voluntary program. After the first couple classes and they all went to college, I was done. The whole process itself becomes the recruiting mechanism. You know, the word gets out pretty quick. The kids are all listening to the ground. They know where to go and what's happening. So we got plenty of kids. On the vocational side, we do an interview for every student. And basically it's, tell us why we should give you an opportunity to have a new life. And um, works out fine. Got a waiting list to get in that program. But the message is, uh, you have to perform brilliantly. And the fact that you're a minority or woman or poor is not a good enough excuse. Sorry. You want to do that, go down to the poverty program, go down at the next corner. This is a world-class training center. Amen. Different way of thinking. Different performance, different outcomes. People are a function of expectations. One kid, a little smart kid, said, I don't believe you uh, or here because you want to be here. I said, yeah, okay, man. Well, let me tell you a little story. Uh, did any of y'all know I was an airline pilot? They all sat there real quiet. I said, well, before I met all you, I had a job flying for Braniff Airlines, one of the great airlines of the world, uh, 727s. And if I had stayed there, I would be probably now a, either a, a co-pilot or captain on the 747, flying three days to Paris. And I wouldn't be talking to people like you because I'd be making a ton of money sitting in Paris. So I didn't go back to flying Branham. Do you think that's enough of a sacrifice to deserve your attention? Well, they all went back to class. So that's the point of the story. I'm not doing this because I don't have anything else to do. See, poor people will take you even if you're not qualified. They're so desperate, they'll take anybody. What I wanted to know is, I don't have to be doing this for a living. So I could think of myself as an airline captain who devoted his life to poor people because they didn't have much of a chance. And I'm still an airline captain. I have the, my license in my wallet. And it gave me the competitive advantage that I needed to know I wasn't locked in to the circumstances in which many of the students found themselves. Huge advantage. Because a lot of the work I do is psychological. And it's all driven by relationships. Could you say your name? My name is Daryl Gray. I am a uh, HPM student here and in the Mongan Commonwealth Fund Fellowship under Dr. Reed. You've had an extremely fruitful career and spent a lot of time at the top of, of, of your career. But I know along the journey, you've also had some times when you've been in the middle. 
And what strategies, for those of us who are kind of in the middle, what strategies would you suggest that we employ in leading up to those above us, leading across to colleagues, and leading down to those who are also trying to come up to the middle? Well, the first thing is you have to develop a deep understanding of human relationships, all kinds of relationships. You have to learn to become trilingual. I talk to rich people, I talk to poor people, and everybody in the middle. I'm trilingual. Uh, and you have to be able to do it flawlessly. So you can go from talking to rich people to poor folks in five seconds and be able to change your direction. And the way you learn that is you practice it. You start talking to a wide range of people. Get real smart about educating yourself. That's, that's really important because this is a relationship game. And since I didn't have any money, I had to learn how to talk. If you don't have any money, you better learn how to talk, man, or you're going to be very hungry. So I figured out how to talk. And you do that by practicing how to talk about yourself and about your vision and about your dreams. Um, the other thing that's very important, you've got to surround yourself with at least a couple people who believe in your vision of what you're trying to do because this work is hard. I make it look easy because that's my job. But you're uphill every day of your life and you get discouraged. So you've got to have people around you who believe in you, man. You know, who think your, your life is worth something, where you're trying to go is possible, so that they can reinforce you when you, you get a little discouraged. You don't have to be Mother Teresa to do this work. There's only one of her, okay? Most of us can't meet that standard. We're kind of down here in the group of you know, regular old folks. And for us, we have to figure out strategies to sustain ourselves, particularly if you're going to do work like I do, because you're working with people who are suffering all the time. So your inspiration is not going to come from them. It's got to come from somewhere else. That works out pretty good, at least that so far. Could you maybe speak good. to this issue? Hi, my name is Maria Portela. I'm also in the Mungan Commonwealth Fund under Dr. Reed. And my question is, in throughout your journey, when you have actually talked about a proposal with somebody that perhaps is not that in sync with the vision that you have, how have you reached across the table to engage them in the reality of your vision and how important it is, and if they have if they have opposed your idea, have you invested some of your energy in reinitiating, um, or have you just forgotten about the idea and actually looked for other sources of energy and other opportunities? How many of you would like to work for a guy like me when you get out of this place? Raise your hand. That's pretty good. That's how, <laughs> right? Oh, I showed you a box of slides and some words. What you do is you try to make the work so compelling that people really feel stupid if they don't give you some money. So, <laughs> and I've gotten to be pretty good at, at running my mouth and telling this story. But it's a vision that's not a program. Big difference. I'm not selling programs. I'm selling a way of thinking about life reflected in programs. But you have to have the philosophy behind the programs or people kind of yawn at you. So what I've decided to do is to try to create a vision that's so powerful 
that no one will be able to resist it ultimately. So that it gets to be a part of a, a big, bright conversation. And that works. I'm telling you that works. Um, your governor, Deval Patrick, I went to see him, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, and with several of his cabinet secretaries. And we have a center open in Boston. He was one of the first guys to step up to help us. And he said, uh, before I really knew him, he said, well, first of all, I'm going to support you. I said, well, great, Governor. That's a nice way to start the meeting. Uh, he said, the reason is uh, my daughter called me. She went to visit you a year ago, which I had forgotten. Sarah Mor Patrick Morgies. And she called me from Pittsburgh, and she said, Dad, I'm sorry I called you this morning. I was supposed to call you last night. But I was so overwhelmed by the power of what I saw at Mr. Strickland Center, I actually fell asleep at the airport. He said, my daughter's never called me with that tone in her voice. Wow. So as it turns out, the center's now open in Boston. And three weeks ago, I was here, and the governor showed up with his two, three cabinet secretaries. And he walked in, and you could see that it took his breath away. And I said, governor, this is what's called a training center. He said, man, wow. And the students performed brilliantly. It was a great day in Boston. Lots of sunlight, working on the front desk. Everybody's having pretty good food. I said, this is how you cure poverty. Poverty is a cancer of the spirit. Mm. It's a way of thinking, man. And the reason I wanted MacArthur, I'm told, because you don't apply for the gig. I mean, <laughs> you know, they kind of watch you for years, that I figured out the cure for spiritual cancer. It's sunlight, it's good food, it's clay, it's jazz, it's enthusiasm. You can cure cancer. Or why would I be able to get this far if that's not true? We have eight centers open and operating. They're all getting the same outcomes as Pittsburgh. And I think if, I, if God has decided to keep me around, I may pull this thing off. You know, I've been in Israel. I got one speech, you saw it, them slides. So I'm in Israel with the Jews on one side and the Arabs on the other and I'm giving this talk. And there's this one Arab guy looking at me like he want to cut my throat, man. So I'm watching him and telling this story. At the end of the presentation, the interpreter, who had an interpreter, the guy reached under his beads and he threw these beads on the table. And I said to the interpreter, what are these beads? He said, well, every Muslim is required to go to Mecca on something called the Hajj, and he, for which they get a set of beads that commemorate their journey. He's giving you his beads. He says, you're a true believer. Man, I'm telling you, that was very powerful. And I turned to these guys and I said, look, I've been in the Jewish kibbutzes and the Arab villages. I have news for you. Your kids look exactly the same. They got black hair and black eyes and copper skin. They're just children, man. We need to build them a center. Well, we've got land in Akko today in the north, right on the Galilee. And we may pull this thing off. So stay tuned on that, that one. Hi, my name is Michael Chaitkin. I'm a master's student in health policy and management. In public health, one thing we talk about a lot is how to take promising individual programs and scaling them up. So right. I'm curious sort of what the biggest obstacles or unforeseen issues were as you took this model from Pittsburgh and started to apply it in other places, and how did you overcome those? I'm overcoming them. This is a work in progress, okay? 
I still got 194, 92 centers to build. We may get there. But one of the biggest questions is how can you be in Cincinnati when you live in Pittsburgh? How do you ensure the quality of the program, the excellence and all this business? So we've developed a model. I have a team now of people to do this work. I have four people on our faculty full time. That's all they do is replication work. I'm the point guy, but they do actually do a lot of the hands-on. And it's a five-year formal relationship, so it's very high touch. And um, that's how we figured out how we can ensure that the thing is off on the right trajectory. And then we connected them, so we have a network of affiliates now. So we're all connected to each other. We can exchange faculty, we can exchange curriculum. There's power in numbers in terms of funding. So that's one way that you can ensure that the value proposition is reflected in the other centers. But you have to do it at that level. It's not McDonald's. We're not stamping out hamburgers. These, every one of them is a little bit of a custom fit for that community, but the value proposition is non-negotiable. Beautiful space, high quality, good food, no used furniture, no used equipment, world-class faculty. If you don't do that, then you can't work our model. See, people, People tell you all about themselves the way that they do their work. When you come into my center, it's breathtaking in the middle of the inner city. It's stunning. So whatever you're thinking, you say, well, whatever this guy's into, he's pretty serious about it. When I go into many of the schools that I look at, they're not bright. They're behind steel doors. They have metal detectors. I said, this is this place that's going to educate children about how to advance in the world. And this is how they think about themselves. I don't think they're going to make it. You can't start off being a prisoner in the morning and become a good student in the afternoon. You have to start being a good student in the morning. And the first thing you do is you see something beautiful looking at you when you walk in the door. Now, I'm not some great educational theorist. I'm telling you what I figured out through trial and error. This is left foot in front of right stuff, but so far so good. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Germán Orrego. I am a doctoral student in the Environmental Health Department, and I lived one year in Pittsburgh, and I think this is the reason that I am here. And I have a very, well, it's a curiosity, and perhaps you have a story behind this. Uh, why you choose or you have some partnership with MIT mm -hmm. with, for one of your program if you have a great university for computer science or robotic or as is uh, Carnegie Mellon University that is different than University of Pittsburgh that is very good as well well the guy who's running Carnegie Mellon was at MIT and he and I are going to become good friends he just don't know it yet <laughs> uh, but the way I got the MIT is just like the way I got anywhere relationships so I was in the Bahamas given this slideshow to a bunch of millionaires. And there was one young woman who gave a presentation on digital imaging. And so afterwards, I said, what do you do for a living? She said, well, I work at MIT. I said, oh, really? I said, I'd like to come up and see what you do, because I pursue stuff. So she toured me around MIT. I met some of the faculty. The faculty loved it. I said, I want to form a partnership. I want to build a digital imaging center in Pittsburgh and you guys can be our partners. I'll go get the money. And they said, well, that's great, but where are you going to do with it? 
I said, I'm going to replicate it in every center I build around the United States of America. That's what I'm going to do with it. So I'm handing you on a tray a national model for working with inner city kids in the middle of tough neighborhoods, teaching them the technology of the next century. Hello, this is not that hard. Well, we got a handshake. And I think we're going to get into it big time. We're just about to announce the Digital Imaging Center next month. We've got a big meeting with foundations and stuff. And Carnegie Mellon will play an important role as well because I want to drill down deeper with them in Pittsburgh and wider across the spectrum with MIT. My strategy is it's not one or the other, it's both. Everybody has a way to participate. You can always set another plate at the table. Hi, I'm Lily. I'm a master's in public health student in global health. I was just wondering, um, I mean, thank you for the presentation. It was really yeah. great. Um, so in the introduction, it was mentioned that you're an advisor in the White House. And I'm just wondering, uh, has there been any progress or discussion on using this your sort of model within the public school systems? Not yet. But I, if you ever go to the White House, I highly recommend the lamb chops. Uh, <laughs> they're very good. I tried to eat all my tax money in lamb chops when I was down there. Um, the president invited me to serve on this council called the Council on Community Solutions. We've come up with a bunch of really good recommendations. I think that we may, I may end up working with Vice President Biden to implement some of them because the biggest problem is not the ideas, it's getting them implemented, as the president has discovered. It's very <laughs> difficult to get anything through the Congress, including the federal budget, by the way. So I think that this initiative of Vice President Biden tracks very nicely with what we're trying to do. And I think that may be a way that we can implement some of the recommendations that we've made to the president. It was some really bright folks on this thing, including uh, some guy named Bon Jovi. Uh, there, when I was in the White House, in the Oval Office, they have this list of all these people on this committee. So I'm looking down the list, and wonder, so what, what this Bon Jovi's into, whatever. So I go back to Pittsburgh and my daughter said, well, how was the White House? I said, oh, it was cool. The president's a nice man, good guy. You ever heard of somebody named Bon Jovi? She said, oh, Dad, I hope you didn't tell the president you didn't know the guy. I said, no, I kept my mouth shut. What's he into? Well, I found out what he was into. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, I got lucky again. Bon Jovi was going to play Pittsburgh for the first time. And one of his advanced people had figured out that Bon Jovi and I were on the same presidential commission. So bottom line is Bon Jovi came over before the concert and spent two hours at our center. And he and I have become very close friends. And I think we're going to get something done relative to his strategy and mine before this is over. Hi, my name is Pamela. I'm a master's student in epidemiology. I'm wondering what do you look for in the people that you plan to pass this along to? How do you keep your vision sustainable? I look for hope in the people that I'm working with, that there's some characteristic that aligns them with the concept of hope. Um, intelligence is what it is. You know, resumes are what they are. At the end of the day, I'm looking for people who are excited about living and who want to make a difference in the world. 
that's a, that's a feeling. It's not written down on any resume as such, but you start to get certain markers and you start to hang around people long enough. You can see the ones who really want to make some out of this life. Not everybody does. Many people are just putting in the time and they go into a job they don't like, you know, they marry somebody they don't like, they get a big house they don't like, and they spend all their time disliking things. I want to spend my time with people who like things, who are grateful for the fact that they get up in the morning and, and are not so preoccupied with themselves, they don't want to help others. And those are the kind of people I want to hang with. See, I'm not, nowadays, I'm in this to build centers. I don't need another center. I'm eating okay in Pittsburgh. I got a retirement plan, you know, all that business. You know, I got a couple of kids who are doing pretty good. Uh, I got a wife who seems to like me, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm all right. So why would I want to go to Israel and work with Jews and Arabs to build a center? Because it's part of how I define a successful life. That's why. And that center is just as important to me as anything else I do in this world. And I don't care if anybody supports it right now but they may be able to support it later, so I'm going to stay with this thing. And at the end of the day, you're only living once. And the only question that you really have to answer is, what are you going to do between now and then? Because from what I can gather, having buried my mom and dad, all you have on your last day are your memories. You better make sure you got some good memories. That's what I recommend. I can assure you I'm going to have a lot of good memories. Thank you. Uh, Miranda Daniloff Mancusi here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, you are a person, obviously, with an enormous amount of energy and optimism and hope. And I'm wondering, what disappoints you? Not being able to accelerate the pace of the work. That's what disappoints me. Because we got it figured out. We, we got this thing dialed in. And there's no excuse why we're living this way, man. You know, I'm waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, we got this thing figured out with these poor kids. There's nothing wrong with these kids. We're wasting all the money in the government. Programs are ineffective. Kids are dying. And we got answers. So the frustration, the disappointment is I can't scale it fast enough. Because, you know, you got to start with a conversation. you got to prove to everybody you know what you're talking about. It takes forever. You know, and so you have this labor-intensive process to get a center going. I want to build 200 centers yesterday, not day after tomorrow. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to tell this story a lot of times before we can get this needle moved. So my real present frustration is not being able to scale this thing fast enough because every life matters. Every life matters. And unfortunately, my mom, before she passed along, implanted a little gene in me that prevents me from blocking out images of human suffering. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm watching CNN, I see some kid in Africa with flies in his mouth, or these children in Guatemala eating out of canals. I don't know how to block out the pain. So I want to do something about it, meaning change the conditions, because this is ridiculous that people are living like this in this world. There's enough money. Now we've got enough talent. You can't tell me that, that we can't solve this stuff. So I'm going to play it out. 
and see where it takes me. Ghana, I'm a Agro Woodland Fellow, Syrian Fellow. Uh, hearing you talk, you've got a lot of inspiration. You, I, I kept on wondering whether it is the environment. It is not the environment that made you successful. The environment of the U.S. And I just heard you talk about Guatemala. So the question is, what is the plan, your personal plan for translating this from this contextual uh, environment into environment where the resources are really not there. It's challenging. I'm not asking you to do uh, go and give them money, but then replicate such ideas in these resource-constrained environments. Well, every country's got money. Most countries wasted a lot of it. And so what I'm saying is you can't tell me that we can't find a couple million dollars to build a world-class trading center in Kenya. You will never convince me of that. There's enough oil, okay, and enough minerals to build one center, one center, to plant a healthy seed, right? That can be done anywhere, and then not expensive. The World Bank has a whole lot of money, all right? And as far as I'm concerned, they need to be giving me some of it so I can start building centers for these folks. It's ridiculous that we're living like this. There's billions of dollars that exchange hands in the world economy. I want a half of 1%. And I can build a center in Ghana or Kenya or any place else, by the way. And no one on this planet is going to convince me there's not enough money to do it. Because there is enough money to do it. The issue is to get the leadership to admit it. Okay? Um, there's a lot of wealth in the world. And I just want to see some of it distributed to people who don't have any. And you can't tell me that you can't do it because you can do it. It costs a lot of money to keep people poor, by the way. When you add up medical costs, health care, poor diets, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, jails, it's tens of thousands of dollars to keep people poor. Give me the money. I'll cut it in half, and you will make money, and everybody will live happily ever after. Get me in front of the World Bank, okay? I may be end up in front of the UN before this is over. A uh, quick story. I got an award called the GOI Peace Award in Japan. I was 10 miles from Fukuyama, the first nuclear plant that melted, and I got this medal. And the reason I got the medal was this guy, Mr. Sanji, called me from Japan. He says, your name is in nomination for the GOI Peace Award, and if we were wondering if you win it, you could show up. I said, well, all right, I'll check my schedule. That's cool, whatever. So a couple weeks later, the guy wrote to Brian Speck and said, you want it? And I said to my executive assistant, Yvonne, I said, would you check out the Goy Peace Award and find out what this thing is? And she came in and she said, man, you better get in here. Uh, well, it was Bill Gates with a medal around his neck, and then a guy named Deepak Chopra with a medal around his neck, and then Oscar Arias, the president of Costa Rica, won that one before he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and they picked me last year. So I show up in Japan, man, to get this award. Mrs. Sanji's in full dress kimono, sacred presentation, and put the medal around my neck, calligraphy. And then the next day they took me to see the uh, survivors of the tsunami. And I said, well, by the way, I don't need to see the survivors of the tsunami. I got them in Pittsburgh. He said, we're not taking you there for your benefit. We're taking you there for their benefit. 
they need to meet you. So I go to Fukuyama, this bright side of Fukuyama. I meet these people in a village that's been wiped out. And the young Japanese guy asked me about book, which is in Japanese. He said, please sign this. We bring the, believe this book is the road back. The principal takes us down to the school, which is no longer there, when just blown out. Mud, three feet deep. And the principal said, when the first wave broke, I rounded up all the kids and we took them into the hills. And we lived there for three days in the winter. No blankets, no food, no heat, no clothing. And we saved the kids, only to find out that many of their parents had been washed out to sea. So we formed a prayer circle in the mud. And we prayed for the souls of these people. And on the way back to Tokyo, Mr. and Mrs. Sanji said, we're very worried about you, you're really quiet. I said, well, I've never figured out how to look at human suffering without wanting to do something about it. We need to build them a center. Mrs. Sanji said, we got down on our knees and prayed last night that you would reach that conclusion. <laughs> and so we got it teed up, man. And they came to Pittsburgh. Uh, I found out who they were. I said, by the way, who are you? I don't even know you, man. I'm over in Japan and all this business. Well, as it turns out, he's in the dynastic order of Japan. He's an emperor. He's in the, and Mrs. Sanji's great-grandfather donated the cherry blossoms to Washington, D.C., right? That's who the family was. So we're now connected. They came to Pittsburgh. We found a cutting from the original cherry trees. We planted one in their memory outside of our building. And we think that's going to be a stimulus to generate money to build a center for the victims of the tsunami. We can do that in Japan, and we can do it in Ghana, man. There's nobody in this world that can tell me that we can't build these centers because you can't build these centers. You just have to want to do it bad enough. Thank you so much for your contribution today. What a wonderful yeah. story and a great legacy you will leave. Uh, but we have some young um, leaders here. And what I'd like for you to do, if you could, in just a couple of bullet points, maybe, to tell these young people what they actually need in terms of being the kind of leader you are. Uh, some of them may think that, you know, you have to be born with this. Others may think that you learn it along the way, or it may be a combination. But what do you say based on your own experience? You have to have a vision of what you're trying to do in the world, first of all, whatever it is. It's got to be in your head and preferably in your heart. Because if you don't get it to your heart, the head don't make any difference. you got to figure out what you're passionate about. Two, you have to create an environment that allows you to sustain the passion in whatever form that takes. Mother Teresa was very passionate, and she was in the holes of Calcutta, man. So it ain't about money. It's about your head and your heart. Thirdly, you have to surround yourself with people who can help you carry forward your journey. You have to have good friends. Uh, it's important that you have good friends. The other is you've got to make sure that you're an example of success and not a failure, meaning you've got to take care of yourself physically because if you're falling apart, I wouldn't follow you to the bathroom, and you couldn't ask anybody else to either. You've got to look like the example of success and not the example of failure. That's four things. And then fifth, your vision has got to be so brilliant that people have to follow you. That's a real requirement. I don't care what profession you're in. Doesn't matter whether you're a physician, social scientist, engineer. 
it's got to be extraordinary. So at the end of your time, you can say that um, I didn't waste the oxygen on the planet unnecessarily. So that's five principles. You know, um, Henry Ford uh, said that uh, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And you talked about planting a seed and a healthy seed. Can you tell us as we come to the close of today, what is your seed? What is your lesson that you want to leave? I was sitting in Wadzell, Austria with the Dalai Lama, for real, at a world symposium on spirituality. And we were sitting in the monastery in Melk of St. Benedict, just he and I. There was a whole conference, but he, he happened to be at lunch. And he liked me, so he waved me over. So I'm sitting there with the Dalai Lama and um, eating a bowl of soup. And I was really despondent that day. I'd lost some funding. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do, man? I, I, this is crazy. I've got, I'm 40 years in this thing. I'm not supposed to lose funding. I can't lay off staff. And he must have sensed that. He's very, almost clairvoyant. And he was watching me. He didn't say anything exactly. And then he turned to me and he looked at me in a way that I will go to my grave remembering. He said to me, you are not alone in your journey. I'm with you, man. You're not by yourself. And what I will request that you do is do the same thing for somebody in your life that you come in contact with to let them know they're not alone in this journey. You will get as much out of that exchange as the person who's the recipient of it. Please join me in thanking Bill Strickland. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.